Well, my name is George Davis, and I, too, want to welcome you to the Hershey Free Church on Mother's Day. So, <laughs> actually, the uh, live streaming service gave me the opportunity in the previous service just to look at the camera and tell her the card's on the way. And uh, so I'll get to call my mom this afternoon, but I hope this, this is meaningful. I know sometimes this is a stretch for us for different reasons, but I hope this is a good day for you. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're in this series that we've entitled Resurrection as a Way of Life. And what we're doing is this. Uh, we, right, we recently celebrated the resurrection on Easter Sunday, but we're taking a few Sundays after that in this short series to look at some of the ways the New Testament describes the implications of the resurrection and what it means in an ongoing way. And, and one of the realities uh, that we're dealing with is this. When, when you take the message of the, of the New Testament seriously, it becomes very clear that the resurrection wasn't simply a dramatic event that we celebrate one day a year. It wasn't simply a dramatic event. It's, it's actually the dawn of, the, of a new era. We're in, we're in Romans 6 today, and in, in Romans 6, Paul talks about the reality that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, if you started that journey of following him, you have believed the gospel then in a real sense, you have identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've been brought into a new relationship. You have connected with him. And the reality of his work, the reality of the resurrection now defines who you are. You're you're now part of this new era where God is at work in a new way. Now I realize, okay, those are big ideas and maybe one of the helpful ways in which we unpack those ideas and understand them is just to hear stories of what that looks like in particular people's lives. So I've asked Deb Shank to join me this morning and she's graciously been willing to share her story in each of our services And as she comes, she's going to share part of her story, but let me just give you a preview. The reality is uh, she's faced certain challenges in her life, and as she shares part of her story, some of you are going to be able to identify with the very things that she has gone through. So again, Deb, happy Mother's Day, mom, grandmom, excited for you, and thank you for your willingness to share part of our story. Now, I've already said part of your story really includes some very deep challenges. So just take a moment to, to give us part of that life history and also the ways in which those challenges affected you along the way. All right. Well, I was the third and last child of my parents. My dad was a pastor who suffered mental illness. My mother was a sweet and kind person. She was very devoted to dad and worried for him constantly. I grew up feeling distant with mom, but felt very close to dad. Dad worked third shift, well, and he was my babysitter the years before I entered first grade. Those early years bonded my heart to him as I played while he slept on the sofa. Skip ahead to Debbie at 20 years old, marrying the precious man who has now been my husband for 37 years. Like every marriage, we had our struggles. Starting at age 21, I would have four children in about five years. I can remember my identity in those years. I'd become a Christian at a young age, and people admired me as a strong, godly woman, a woman of the word. I remember constantly feeling like a failure as a mother. I was overwhelmed, and I found myself struggling with anger toward our children. The struggles of our marriage intensified. 
and I determined to try harder to love and to forgive. Our daughter would be diagnosed with juvenile diabetes at 11 years old. Our son will be diagnosed with bipolar in his teens. I saw myself as the one who held people together. I remember my prayers being from an anxious and worried heart. I remember telling myself, pray harder, memorize more scripture. The weight of all I carried began to weigh on me, but harder times would lay ahead. My parents' needs were becoming more acute. Mom developed early onset dementia. Dad struggled with depression. I would come home to my dad's voice on our answering machine. Debbie, call me. I'm depressed. Somewhere along the way, I had become his counselor and caretaker of them both. There was a dark storm brewing. I became completely enmeshed in the care of my parents. I was able to get mom placed in a nursing home. Dad was at first relieved, but then became extremely depressed. I can still remember the phone call telling me to come to the hospital that Dad had attempted suicide. We thought it would be like before, that he took too many pills. This time was different. He attempted suicide by drinking hydrochloric acid. We spent a horrific week in the hospital saying our goodbyes until he passed. In deep sorrow, I turned my attention now to Mom, who didn't seem to comprehend that Dad was truly gone. I spent the next year with her until hospice came involved. She was shutting down, refusing to eat. I think the grief of my dad's loss had finally made its way to her soul. For five months, I watched my mother become weaker and slip away. This period was certainly the saddest and the most painful season that I had ever experienced. Still, it was not until our marriage was in crisis that I reached a breaking point. I was able to take a month away, staying with a retired couple from our church. I'd reached a point of extreme exhaustion. Somehow I had taken on the the role of caregiver and fixer for everyone in my family, including my marriage. At the time, I didn't know the depth of my emotional pain. This precious couple came alongside me, loving me like their own daughter. I remain close to them to this day. Well, Deb, you know, as we listen to that, I mean, it's a lot to absorb. Yeah. Uh, because they're just they're layers upon layers of, of really some challenges. And, and obviously, as you described, due to all of this coming together, your life truly reached a crisis point. Now, having shared that with us, just kind of bring, us, bring the story forward and tell us what the journey of healing has looked like. Yeah. Well, next, God led us to a wonderful Christian therapist. I informed her my husband was the problem in our marriage. He had an addiction issue that caused me continuous emotional pain. I had responded with forgiveness in the past, but I just didn't know how to go on. She encouraged me to tell my story from childhood. I told her I grew up in a a loving Christian home. I was not close with mom, but that was okay because I had the closeness with my dad. She challenged me, how was it okay that I wasn't close to my mom? She reminded me of the sweet closeness I told her I enjoy with my daughters. I took home what we talked about in these sessions, and I asked the Holy Spirit to be my counselor. He led me to find a picture of myself at an age that I knew I hadn't felt close to mom. I began a sweet journey of grieving over my loss. I did not have a mother who attuned to my needs. In fact, I developed the personality type of the good girl who seeks to please and attune to the needs of others. 
My heart longed for secure connection and attachment. I learned more recently that my dad's attachment to me was more about the ways I met his emotional needs. It wasn't truly caring for my soul as a little girl. I had become a type of surrogate wife meeting his emotional needs. This was an even harder reality. The Holy Spirit continues to bring healing to this part of my story. Well, my husband and I would continue to go to therapy together, and soon our marriage began to heal. It is still a story of restoration to this day, but I know God placed us together, and I wouldn't want to journey with anyone else. In summary, I have experienced the faithfulness of God all my life. It was not until my early 50s that the Holy Spirit led me to engage my childhood stories of harm. I can tell you the benefits of allowing God to lead you there with trusted friends or a professional counselor. There are podcasts and books and seminars I would gladly share with you to help you start your journey. I will be available at the front after the service. So the benefits of engaging your story. Neuroscience tells us that when we encounter trauma, especially in childhood, our brains fragment in order to protect us. It's common to tell ourselves a kinder, gentler version of the story of emotional harm than the truth of the story. To let the Holy Spirit reveal truth will mean to feel the pain, and we tend to run from pain. But if we follow Jesus into the valley of the shadow of death, he will bring comfort and healing, and he will lead us to resurrection life, to spiritual transformation. To understand the pain is to understand the ways that we have coped, the style of our relating, and even the harm that we have caused in current relationships. I remember one conversation in therapy when she stunned me by saying, for someone who knows so much of scripture, you sure don't seem to trust God very much. She recalls feeling a need to shock me to see that I hid behind a spiritual identity. I no longer see my husband's sins and shortcomings as the reason for our marriage struggles. I see how my relating from a foundation of pain placed a burden of demand on him that he loved me the way I thought would make me whole. I was constantly offended and disappointed by him. Now I'm able to see the good and to be grateful for what he brings to our marriage. He is on his own journey of restoration and transformation, and I'm learning to be an agent of mercy and encouragement to him. I can see Christ transforming every aspect of my life, teaching me to live out of the true self he created me to be, one who is able to be securely Um, attached in relationships both to God and to others, one who lives in confidence, in calm, in clarity, courage, creativity, and compassion for others, but without the need to fix. Letting the Holy Spirit attune and care for my heart wounds has freed up capacity in me to more fully engage the people in my life. I can be fully present for another person's story because Jesus is bringing healing and calm to mine. Well, thank you, Debbie. Um, and uh, as she said, she's going to be available at the end of the service. Would you just help me thank her for sharing that? You know, as I heard that, a couple of phrases really struck out to me. First, this idea of living a resurrected life, right? That's what we're talking about in this series. And, and secondly, as, as she worded it, the idea of... of of becoming the person that God has created me to be. As you hear her story, what, 
what would this look like in your life? What could it look like in your life? For, for you to live that resurrected life. I mean, what, what does that actually entail? To help us think through that, we're going to come back to Romans chapter 6 now. And, and as I said earlier, right, in, in the early part of Romans, Paul talks, or Romans 6, Paul talks about the fact that we've we truly identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? This resurrection of Christ has introduced us to a new era, an era of transformation and renewal, even as Deb described. But he then unpacks, as you move through Romans 6, Paul then unpacks the implications of that. And so let's look at that as we come back to, uh, this is Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Right, having talked about the reality that we have truly identified with Christ and his death and resurrection as believers, he says this, in the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Now, there's a lot in that paragraph. It's, it's densely packed. So what I want to do is just, let's now just walk through it basically line by line as Paul explains to us the implication of the resurrection and what that can mean for our everyday life experience. So let me, let me kind of walk you through it this way. Again, notice in verse 11, Paul says, in the same way, count yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, in what Paul is about to do, he's going to kind of describe the Christian life, but as he does that, notice that it is, is rooted, it's rooted in our identity. It's rooted in who we are in Christ. He says, count yourselves, that is, consider, or let your approach to life be shaped by this truth and reality, that you are dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. Now realize in saying you're dead to sin, that can actually be intimidating because many of us, even if we've been followers of Christ for many years, would say, I don't always feel dead to sin. Sometimes it really feels like, you know, sin is winning. And, and, and I get that. Paul isn't saying you're never going to sin again. What Paul is saying is that from this point forward, you no longer have to consider sin as normal. It's no longer your only option. But please pay attention as we work through this paragraph to this reality that all that Paul is saying here is rooted in our identity. And I, I, I want to highlight that because I think sometimes you can spend time in Christian circles and it feels like we describe the Christian life and, okay, this is what it looks like. And, you know, maybe we come across, come home with a checklist, but somehow in the midst of that, we kind of miss the why. And what is foundational in the New Testament, and this is just one of the passages that I could take you to, but what is foundational in the New Testament is this, ultimately... Ultimately, the Christian way of life is not rooted in duty, although duty is an important part. I think ultimately it is rooted in identity. 
I remember when one of our, our sons was in uh, elementary school and he was, he was coming home from a play date. He'd been at a play date uh, with a friend and this, this family happened to be fairly affluent. And that led to a conversation that we sometimes had when our kids were growing up. If you're a parent, maybe you have these conversations. That, the conversations that go along these lines, why don't we do things like they do, right? Have you had those conversations? And in this case, here was the question. And he was, he was very dramatic, very adamant when he came home. And the question was this. Why don't we have an elevator in our house? <laughs> well... In all the parenting books, I never learned how to answer that question, right? And that, again, would be one of many conversations we would have with our sons about, hey, why we do the things the way we do, and maybe we're different. And, and so, you know, those conversations would go something like this. I mean, in that case, we say, hey, well, look, let's just acknowledge we've got a good house. It's, man, this is, let's not, you know, let's not complain about this house. It's meeting our needs and we're having a lot of fun here. So let's just acknowledge we've got a house that is good for our family. And then secondly, particularly in these kinds of conversations, we talk a little bit about how we spend our resources. And, and with our sons, we wanted to communicate, hey, you know, as a family, we are, we're committed to being a part of our church community and being involved in the work of our church. And that includes how we handle our finances. So we're committed to being an active part in the financial commitment of the life of our church. Furthermore, we've, you know, we've, beyond even our local church, we have friends who are serving in different parts of the world and engaged in different kinds of ministries, and we want to be a part of what they're doing. And so that, that's a key component of, of how we handle our resources. Furthermore, you need to understand that as a family, we're going to place a priority kind of on on experiencing things together and kind of experiencing life as an adventure. That includes travel. And we're going to put resources there. We're not going to be that interested in always getting stuff. So the bottom line is this. (laughs) We're never going to be the family that has an elevator in our house. That's not who we are. And in a similar way, the Apostle Paul says, look, count yourselves dead to sin because as a follower of Jesus, that's not who you are. You're now alive to Christ. And and so all that Paul is saying here is rooted in the reality of the identity that we now have as part of this new relationship. And then I think Paul underscores why this is, why it's important to pay attention. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Hey, Paul, look, I get it. I'm a Christian and I'm going to spend eternity with God. That's, that's great, you know, and I kind of hear you about living out of identity, but it kind of feels like I can take it or leave it. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You've got to take seriously what I'm saying. Because he says this, if you're not careful, if you're not attuned to kind of your approach to life and paying attention to that, the, the work of sin in your life can actually distort your desires. And, and I act, you know, I'm kind of reading between the lines here, but I think there's some gra- grammatical clues in the text that even imply what Paul is saying, that, that sin can even distort good desires that are part of normal human experience, Right? Sin can distort our desire for sexual expression. 
Can, sin can distort how we approach responsibilities in families and in relationships. Sin can distort our desire for meaning and purpose, our desire to make a contribution in very unhealthy and even self-centered ways. So Paul is saying, look, I want you, I want you to live out of your identity because otherwise there, there are all sorts of ways in which sin will introduce distortion into your life. And then we say, okay, Paul, if I'm going to take you seriously, then what does that mean? And and then in the next verse, he gives us this fascinating contrast. And it's it's very intentional, and and it's, it's very parallel in the sense of, don't do this, instead do this. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So again, notice the intentional contrast. Don't do this, instead do this. Now what what does he mean, right? Do not offer. Do not offer any part of yourself to, to, to sin. I think what he's saying is this. Don't get comfortable with habits, with patterns of thinking, patterns of acting, patterns of interacting that are inconsistent with your identity as a follower of Jesus. Instead, live in a way that that reflects your new identity. Be open to the ways in which this new identity can, can influence your habits and your patterns and what that might look like. Again, let me highlight for you the intentional contrast in this passage because I realize for some of us, we, maybe we grew up in Christian circles where it felt like the only message we heard was, here are the things good Christians don't do, right? Here are all the things you, if you're a good follower of Jesus, here are all the things you, here, here's all the stuff on the naughty list. These are the things you need to avoid. And that became kind of your vision of Christianity. But even if you grew up with that, can I suggest that's not the, that's not the vision of following Jesus that's presented in the pages of Scripture, because in the pages of Scripture, and this is just one of many examples, it's, it's, it, it, it's presented that it's not just about avoiding, it's, it's about pursuing. And it's not just about avoiding certain things, it's about pursuing the life that Christ has truly designed us to live. Now as you see this contrast, let me, let me just highlight one other factor for you that I think is very significant. And that is this. Notice, Paul doesn't simply say, hey, hey don't, don't open your life up to sin, otherwise you'll live a life of unrighteousness. Instead, open your life up to God so that you can live a life of righteousness. Now, he basically says that, but notice there's a change in the phraseology that, that I overlooked there. Because what he actually says is this, right? Don't open your life to sin and and just kind of get comfortable with that so that you become an instrument of wickedness or an instrument of unrighteousness. Instead, open your life to God. Present your life to God so that he can influence the tendencies, the patterns, the habits, and how you just live your life so that you will become an instrument of righteousness, 
Interestingly, elsewhere in the New Testament, that, that term can actually be described weapon. It can, you know, so it can be described in some contexts, it seems to carry the idea of instrument or tool in other other contexts, it actually communicates the idea of being a weapon. And you can even translate it that way here, I think. But it, it, and it's not the idea that you're, be, you're to become a, you know, a ballistic kind of personality. Rather, it's recognize that however you choose to live, you're, you're going to have an influence to some extent on the people around you. The people in your families, the people in your school, the people in your workplace. It may not feel that way. But Paul is saying the decisions that you make, how you choose to live your life will never only simply affect you. And ultimately that means you're you're going to become either an instrument of unrighteousness or an instrument of righteousness. So Paul says, look, I want you to, I want you to, I want you to live out of your identity as a follower of Jesus. And and I want you to take this seriously because if you do not take this seriously, there are all sorts of, of dangerous ways in which sin can twist and distort your desires and move you in unhealthy directions. So to take this seriously, I want you to be attuned to ways maybe you're, you're your habits, your patterns of interacting and dealing with other people are, are being influenced by sin. And I want you to move away from that. Instead, I want you to wrestle with what, what does it look like for those patterns and habits and ways of interacting to reflect your new identity. And then after saying that, he comes back to the theme of identity again so that right at the end, he's, he, he just reminds them, remember, you're not under the law, but you're under grace. And in saying you're not under the law, I think particularly the idea is you are not under the condemnation of the law. But because you now live in light of the work of the resurrection, you live as people who are recipients of God's grace. Now, as we, as we digest what Paul is saying there, a friend of mine has uh, developed a, kind of a, a helpful diagram that I'm just going to share with you just to kind of help make this a little more concrete. And let me, let me just show you this diagram. And, and you'll notice that right at the center is the concept of of identity. And of course, our identity is shaped by all sorts of factors, right? It's shaped by our beliefs, our experiences, our family experiences, and all kinds of things kind of fit into how we understand who we are and how we understand who we are in an ongoing way. And whether you realize it or not, I think in so many ways, you and I, at a practical level, we live out of our identity. That is, we live out of who we think we are. And so you go to the bottom of this diagram and, and really I think is, you know, our, our sense of identity kind of will influence the tendencies, that is the habits, the patterns of thinking, the patterns of interacting that we develop in our lives. And over time, those tendencies, those habits will, will lead to action. And then of course, as we take actions over time, those develop consequences and 
Over time, those consequences really shape our reality. To show you what I mean, let me, um, let me just give you an example. So I have a friend, we went to school together my age. And so when his kids were younger, his daughter was about 10, he, uh, he and his wife wanted, wanted their kids to learn to swim, so they wanted to find a, you know, a beginner swim course for their daughter, and it turns out there was a, a really good swim club that was fairly close to where they lived. And so, so they enrolled their daughter in this introductory swim course. Now, they had no grand ideas about what might happen in her life. They just wanted her to learn the basic skills of swimming, right, so she could go to pool parties, maybe go to the ocean at some point. We just wanted her to be safe in the water. So they put her in this swim course. Well, as it turned out, toward the end of the course, during one of the last sessions, it just so happened that one of the upper-level coaches who worked at this club happened to watch the class. And in watching the class, he noticed their daughter. And he found out who they were after class, and he had this conversation. He told them, look, he, you know, I'm, I'm one of the coaches here. He told what he did, and he said, I noticed your daughter, and, and I think she's got some real potential. And I think this really could be something she did well. So I just want you guys to know that. I think there's a great opportunity here for her. And so being the parents that don't want to just push their kids into certain things, they had a conversation with her, and it turns out she really liked the class. She really enjoyed getting into the water. And notice what was happening. She was in a season where, in some sense, an understanding of who she was was now being shaped by this message. Hey, this is something you could do well. This is is something you could potentially thrive at. And, and with that input kind of, kind of shaping the situation, it, kind of, it, it then led to certain tendencies and actions. She went on to, you know, do other courses and eventually became part of a swim team. And, and with that came certain right tendencies in terms of practice and exercise and, you know, getting a proper sleep, the right training, and, and as she, as those tendencies led to more action, over time there were consequences. She got much better at what she was doing. And, and those consequences, in a real sense, then kind of influenced her reality because as a result of that process, she went to a Division I school on an athletic scholarship and would even compete at the U.S. Olympic trials in swimming. So you see kind of how, you know, in a real sense, kind of your understanding of of who you are kind of builds into tendencies and actions and consequences and ultimately will shape your reality. Now, that's a good story, and if you met this family, you would really enjoy being around them, but let's think of a different scenario for a moment, okay? What, what, What would happen when my sense of identity is really rooted in distortion? What happens when we believe a lie? For instance, what if kind of a foundational part of my sense of self was the ongoing message that, you know what, you're never going to amount to anything. You'll never measure up. You will always be a failure. For some people, in in their experience of growing up, that's, that's the kind of messaging they get. And it can be the kind of messaging they absorb. 
And what if I kind of go through that messaging in life and I never hear of the transforming work of the gospel? Now, maybe I'll develop some sense that I'm going to prove people wrong, but I think for many, what happens is when you absorb those kinds of messages over time, it's, it's easy just to settle into those expectations. To simply settle into unhealthy habits. I mean, that sense of identity can lead to tendencies where I don't apply myself, I procrastinate, where, where I consistently choose the path of least resistance. Maybe I become that difficult kid in school. Maybe as I go through the young adult years, I get caught up in dangerous and destructive behavior. And why does it matter? My life's not going to amount to much anyway. I might as well enjoy it. And over time, those actions have consequences. Perhaps consequences that I don't like. And ultimately, those consequences, consequences result in a reality that perhaps I don't want. But... But when you believe the lie, you will live the lie. Even in Deb's story, you heard what can happen when, when my sense of identity is shaped by this sense of being the responsible person that has to fix everyone around me. So whether you realize it or not, in some sense, you, you are living this circle. You're living this diagram. We live out of who we think we are. That's why Paul says, count yourself dead to sin. That's not who you are. But count yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. With this emphasis on identity, I find it interesting to watch the flow of Paul's argument through the rest of the section because this part of Romans actually builds to the conclusion of chapter 8. And, and in chapter 8, Paul says a couple of fascinating things. First of all, he says, he says you're not under condemnation. It's almost like he says, look, I, I realize you might think if people really knew who I was, this way of life would never work. But, but he says, look, if you are part of God's family, no one can bring a charge against you. Christ has died in your place. You're no longer condemned. <laughs> yes, God fully knows who you are, but he sent his son in your place. And then the chapter builds, and you get to the end of the chapter, and it's this, this, this kind of just amazing rhetorical flourish on the love of God and in different ways, Paul says, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And if I could kind of word Paul's argument in a different way, I think I would, I would put it this way. I think Paul is just showing us that as followers of Jesus, we are truly loved and deeply known. So when he says, count yourself dead to sin, that's not who you are, but alive to Christ. I think he's saying, look, I want you to live (laughs) 
live as people who understand that you are truly loved and deeply known by God. So that really leads me to this question, and this is, this is kind of where I want to leave you with this morning. And so I'm going to give you a little homework, but I really want to encourage you to think about this. And here's the question I want to ask. Do my tendencies reflect my identity as someone truly loved and deeply known? So just think for a moment about what your next week looks like, right? What this next week starting tomorrow looks like. And we, you know, we come from different places, different seasons of life. We have different roles, different responsibilities. But think about, think about what's going to be on your calendar this week, the roles you have, the responsibilities you have and in the community, at home, in the workplace, at school. And think about your tendencies in engaging those roles and responsibilities, as an employee, a parent, you know, whatever, whatever this week looks like for you, think about the tendencies you normally have <laughs> in engaging those roles, how you think about those roles, how you act and interact with the people that are a regular part of your life. And my question is, do those tendencies reflect the idea of someone who is truly loved and deeply known. Now, I think for some of us, in really wrestling with that question, we're going to have to acknowledge, you know, there's, <laughs> there's some of the tendencies that have taken root in my life that are, are just unhealthy. Maybe, you know, I'm always, I always presume the worst about things or, or what might happen. And I always get caught up in all this what-if stuff and it creates worry and sometimes unnecessarily fear. I become slow to act. And, and more often than not, all the things I worry about, they just never come true. And, and somehow in the midst of that, I, I don't really have a vision, an understanding that I'm truly loved and deeply known. Now, you might say, well, well, okay, George, I get it, you know, that our tendencies are to be shaped by our identity, but so what exactly will that look like? Well, I can't, I can't tell you exactly what it's going to look like in each of our lives, and so I'm going to kind of leave this question with you for you to wrestle with it. But, but in thinking about that, let me, let me just remind you of a couple of things that Paul actually says in Romans. I mean, one of the things he says in Romans is that if we are followers of Christ, right, if we're embracing this way of life and embracing our identity, that, that we are to be people whose minds are transformed by the truth. And so I think one of the, one of the markers of people who are living this way is that we're just, we live in a way where we're open to the truth of God influencing our thinking and how we deal with our roles and responsibilities. And so am I a person, for instance, that when I hit a hard place, when I get a conflict, or there's this challenge I'm dealing with, am I a person that when life gets a bit complicated, all of a sudden that becomes all-consuming so that I don't see anything else, so that right, this is just all that is filling up my windshield emotionally and spiritually? Or am I a person that in the midst of that is still open to the reality of, oh, man, this is hard, I didn't expect this. But as a follower of Jesus, I still know that I'm, I'm truly loved and deeply known. I mean, maybe even if I'm in a situation where it's like I'm being treated unfairly, I've been misrepresented at work, or somebody put the blame on me, and I know that's not right, I, I still remember that, you know what? 
I'm truly loved and deeply known by God. So one of, one of the markers that I'm, I'm learning to live this way is just, I think, a mind that is being renewed. Renewed by the truth, open to God's word, open to what he's wanting me to learn. And I also think as, as that happens, maybe another marker is this. As I learn to kind of live as someone who is truly loved and deeply known, I've got, a, I think, a growing understanding of the reality of God's grace. Remember, even in this passage, Paul says, you are not under the law. And again, I think he's highlighting the idea of you're not condemned by the law, but you are under grace. And see, when you take grace seriously, you have to take growth seriously. You have to take the the truth that God wants to be at work in us in an ongoing way. And can I suggest that that really does create a certain amount of freedom in your life? Right? I mean, think about those times when you when you blow it, right? Those things. Some of us maybe we're in seasons of of parenting where survival is the win. Right? You know what I mean? You know that season sometimes where it feels like we got to the end of the day, everybody's in bed, nobody died, it's a win. Do you know what I'm talking about? And, and sometimes that season can feel so disheartening. Sometimes that season can make you feel like such a failure. But yet to know even in the midst of that, I'm, I'm a recipient of God's grace. And this is just a crazy season, but... God's grace maybe is in work of this season in ways I don't fully understand yet. I'm, I'm going to embrace that. And that there's, I think there's a freedom that comes with that. There's a freedom in recognizing, you know what, I don't have to get everything right. And so, yeah, you know, I, I, I mishandled this project. I dropped the ball at work. I'm not going to be the person that makes excuses. I'm not going to be the person that blames other people or that complains about all the new systems in place because of COVID and blah, blah, blah. I'm going to be the person that's willing to own it. And move forward in a healthy way because even in the midst of that failure, I know I'm, I'm truly loved and deeply known. And, and, and when we take the reality of grace seriously, we also have to come to grips with the fact that it's, 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 Paul talks about God's grace. The expectation is not that it simply works in us, but that it works through us. And, and the reality of God's grace can create a freedom in our lives where we can truly be for other people in meaningful ways. So again, my challenge to you, just think about your, think about your roles and responsibilities. Think about how you typically engage those interact with the people that are a regular part of your life, how you think about that, and wrestle with this question. Do my tendencies reflect my identity as someone truly loved and deeply known? And you see, we take this seriously because we are people who understand that the resurrection was not simply a dramatic event. The resurrection was the dawn of a new era. Let's pray together. Gracious God, even now, I I just pray for us as we're gathered here, joining online. I pray just for the work of your spirit. I pray for, for some of us that 
that as we think through maybe some of our tendencies and how we handle our roles and responsibilities, I pray that if there's some things that are, are deeply broken, that, that you would just bring that to our attention. And I pray that the convicting work of your spirit would just challenge us to see, you know what, there really is a different way. This is not who we are as followers of Jesus. And I pray that we would be open just to to wrestle with, well, so what does it look like for me to kind of engage my roles and responsibilities as someone who is truly loved and deeply known? May we be open to what that looks like. And may we be open in a way that understands this is who we are now. We are people who must now consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Again, Deb Shank is going to be down here, so if you'd just like to kind of interact with her further or even get some of her suggestions in terms of resources, she'd love to have that conversation with you. And even as she's coming forward, we're going to have members of our prayer team here. And maybe as you've even been thinking about this question, if, if we can pray with you about, well, what does that look like in your particular role and your particular responsibility to live this way? If we, can, if we can in any way pray with you about that or other things going on in your life, we'd love to have the opportunity to do so. And again, we take this seriously because we are people who understand that the resurrection was not simply a dramatic event. It was the dawn of a new era. And as you leave now, may you leave with that conviction. Amen.